And I will say this, uh, just because it is a good segue into my message today. Nice. I will say this. It is beautiful in Colorado. It, it was. It is beautiful in Colorado, and uh, the weather perfect every day. Uh, my brother lived in this town called Leadville, which was in the mountains. And so, like from the front front door of his house, you look everywhere you look. You know, you see mountains around. And Colorado is one of those places where it's just you see the beauty of God's creation, and you wonder if. Uh, if you're closer to God there, possibly, and that's actually what we're going to talk about today. I've had some amazing spiritual experiences in Colorado, actually. Not just this trip. Um, you know, some of you guys have heard my... How many of you guys have actually heard my uh, canoeing in the Colorado River story? Okay, I'm not going to tell it today. But someday, if you, you might have the privilege of hearing that story. Uh, basically, I should have died, and God saved my life. It was pretty amazing. So that was the Colorado River I remember, uh, yeah, anytime I went camping or canoeing with my dad, I should have died is the end of that story. <laughs> just how my dad rolls, I guess. And, uh, but I know there's another, I mean, Colorado's just beautiful. I remember one of the, the youth, our youth group, uh, you guys are going on some trips later, uh, next month and things like that. You know, those high school youth group trips were always a highlight of my life. And one of the, one of the years we, uh, we went down to Colorado. And after we did like the conference we were going to, our youth pastor took us, uh, maybe this isn't working. There it is. Our youth pastor took us to this place. This place is literally called the Garden of the Gods. And um, it's got these amazing rock formations. You can climb up them. There's some of them are more level than others. And uh, we actually did a communion service with our youth group as the sun was going down there in the Gardens of the Gods. And it was, it was, it was beautiful. And so I, I've had a couple, like, really... You know, amazing experiences of God there in Colorado, I'd say this last couple of weeks was as well. And it got me thinking, particularly as I looked at this text today and kind of some of the themes that were emerging, is this idea of, of places in which we go and meet God. You know, uh, there, there's a New York Times article not too long ago called Where Heaven and Earth Talk Come Closer. And uh, I'm Irish, so I kind of have heard of this term used before. But um, there's this term called thin places that they talk about. They, they, they spoke of them as being locales, locales where the distance between heaven and earth collapses, and we're able to catch glimpses of the divine. And here's the uh, Celtic saying, heaven and earth are only three feet apart, but in thin places that distance is even shorter. It's this idea, I mean, yesterday we, we kind of did a social retreat, but it's kind of this idea that, you know, we go out to nature, you go out to a specific place, and if you go to the right place, maybe, one of these thin places, maybe you'll be closer to God. The, uh, I did some research. Spiritual tourism is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. This idea of spiritual tourism, pilgrims, retreats, uh, going to, you know, temples and you know, it, it, it has accelerated. There's this book that came out uh, a couple years ago, Eat, Pray, Love, What Woman Search for Everything. You know, it's her journeys through Europe and India, and this idea of spiritual tourism has been called the fastest-growing sector in the whole travel business, up 164% in the last four years. And just this idea that we need to, to go somewhere to have an experience of God. That there are places on this earth where that distance between heaven and earth becomes thinner, right? And so as we're looking at this, 
you know, is there anything to this thin place idea? At first glance, it, it seems to be an emphasis on the passage. As I was reading this passage of Jacob going and camping, you know, putting his head down on the rock, uh, it was it, it's impressive how many times in the passage this idea of place comes out of that passage. So Genesis 28, 10 says, Jacob left the Sheba, went to Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Whenever there's emphasis and repetition like that in, in the Hebrew scriptures, it, it's generally trying to make a little bit of a point. And so Jacob has his Jacob has his experience of God and that vision that is sent, and and then he awakes from his sleep and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know that. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning he took the stone, he put it under his head, and he set it up as a pillar. And he poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of this place Bethel. But Bethel actually literally means the house of God. Maybe step over this way a little bit. That scares me. And so Bethel becomes, and so throughout this passage, there's this emphasis on this place, Bethel, that he calls the house of God. And there's no doubt, I don't, I, we cannot doubt Bethel, this place becomes a significant, a significant marker in Jacob's spiritual journey. It becomes a place where he remembers that he met with God. Later, um, later in Genesis, God says to him in Genesis 31, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. And later in Genesis 35, God actually commands him to go back to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar to God there who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So, so part of the, the point of this passage is explaining how Bethel becomes a significant center, a place for worship. And it does throughout Israel's history. Uh, Deborah, the judge Deborah, um, sets up her place of counsel just outside of Bethel. Right? She was named a, she was known as a prophetess and as a judge. Uh, later in the book of Judges, when there's like a civil war going on in, in Israel, in uh, Judges chapter 20, I believe it is, uh, the Ark of God had been located in Bethel, and the, the entire nation, except for Benjamin, the warring tribe, the entire nation actually goes to Bethel, fasts and prays and inquires of the Lord there. And so at least the, the Israel, the, in, in the Jewish mindset, there's this connection to Bethel as this, this place where God will meet you and guide you. Later in Israel's history, this is capitalized on by an evil king. Uh, the evil king, Jeroboam, he's, after the country divides into the north and the south, King Jeroboam is the, the king of the northern tribes. And of course, Jerusalem, the center of uh, Jewish worship is in the southern, you know, the southern kingdom. And so Jeroboam, the northern king, doesn't want all of his people going to the southern kingdom of Jerusalem to worship. So he actually sets up two places, two centers of idolatrous worship. He puts golden calves in Dan in the north and Bethel in the southern part of his kingdom. And Bethel becomes a place of idolatry. 
It becomes this place where people are, yeah, they're going and seeking an experience of God, but it's a, it's a false experience of God. I mean, that is much of what this spiritual tourism is. It's going from place to place and from temple to shrine and, and seeking this experience of God, but ultimately often a false one. And so it, it seems, at least in Israel, Bethel was recognized as a place where God drew near, but that idea was used for good and evil. So is there anything to this idea? Like, should you go get your passport and your yoga mat and go, you know, find some temple somewhere, and uh, this will be the place where I can connect to God? As much as the text makes a big deal of the place, and it's, it's explaining for the Jewish people, the significance of Bethel as a center of worship, I think the Bible would drive us away from seeing any certain location as a place that will bring us closer to God. I'll explain this through the text. So I, I think we're going to be driven away from this idea that there is this place I can go. Like the Garden of the Gods in Colorado, though it is given that really, I don't know, blasphemous name, it's not a place any closer to the gods because it has cool rocks and mountains around. And, and the way I would, I guess the way I'd argue that is this. A thin place is anywhere God chooses to meet with us. Like God's emphasis, when God meets Jacob here, even though the text is making a big deal of this place, God does not. God meets Jacob there. God chooses to meet Jacob there. But look at what God tells Jacob. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land in which you lie, I'll give to you and your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of earth. But, he says, it's not just this land on which you lie. He says, you will spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then he says this. Behold, I am with you. And I will keep you Wherever you go. Wherever you go. Remember, Jacob here is fleeing from his brother. He's running away. He's, he's actually, if you remember at the beginning of this chapter, um, he's, he's the, literally what's happening is his brother wants to, like I told the kids, his brother wants to kill him because he's lied and he's stolen from his brother time and time again. But his mom, Rebecca, comes up with this plan because she doesn't want to go to Isaac, Jacob's father, and just say, hey, you know, Esau wants to kill Isaac, so or Esau wants to kill Jacob, so we should send Jacob away. What she does is she concocts this plan, and she says, you know how much you and I hate Esau's wives. That's basically what she tells him. You know how much Esau's wives have caused a great affliction to us. Like Esau's wives are the worst. That's what she tells him. We don't want Jacob to have a wife like Esau's wives, is what she tells him. And so Isaac says, oh, you're right. We should send Jacob away, back to our people, back east, back to our people, and he'll go get a wife back over there. Now, it's interesting. When Abraham, you know, the grandfather, had to find a wife, was thinking about finding a wife for Isaac, the son, Abraham got a servant and said, have to send the servant back east. Do not take Isaac back there. Right? Abraham was concerned that his family never left this land that God promised him. 
But Isaac, apparently that part didn't get passed down. So Isaac doesn't have the same concern. So Isaac says, that's a good idea, Rebecca. We'll send Jacob off to go find a wife out east. That's where I found my wife anyway. And so Jacob gets sent. So, so in Isaac's mind, Jacob's sent to go find a wife. In Jacob's mind and in Rebecca's mind, he's running away for his wife. Okay? And so what, what God says to Jacob here becomes that much more significant. He says, I am with you, Jacob. And he says, I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you. See, that's a significant thing. Jacob makes, and, and the text is actually making this big, big deal about this place about Bethel, about this house of God, about this is the place where we saw, this was the thin place. And God's like, Jacob, I'm meeting you here, but once you leave this place, I'm not leaving you. Jacob, I'm meeting you here, but once I leave this place, I'm going to go with you. And I'm going to guard you. And I'm going to be around you, and I'm never going to leave you. Right? That's the real place that you want to be in, is where God is, and where is God? He's everywhere. Right? And, and, and it, it's really actually, I, I want to even make a bigger point of this, because this is brought out. Um, everything God says, almost everything God says to Jacob, is the same promise that God has already made to his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. So he says to uh, Jacob, he says, the land in which you lie, I'll give to you and your offspring. Well, to, to Isaac, he said the same thing. He said, to you and your offspring, I'll give all these lands. And to Abraham, he actually said, this is way back in Genesis 13. He says, for all the land you see, I'll give to you and your offspring forever. So so those promises God's made to Jacob's family before. The idea that his offspring will be like the dust of the earth. He said the same thing to Abraham. That in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He said the same thing to Abraham. This idea of I am with you. He said the same thing to Isaac. But this is what he has said to Jacob. Unique to Jacob, he makes two promises to Jacob as Jacob's running away from his brother. He says, and as I said before, these are the two things he's promised. I will keep you wherever you go. And the significance of that word is I will watch over you and I will guard you. Jacob, I will be your protector. I will be the shield about you. I will guard you and stand watch over you as you flee away from your brother. And then he says, again, as I said, he says, I will not leave you. The promise of God. In in the New Testament, he, he says it later again to Joshua, I will never leave you, never forsake you. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament applies that promise Listen, he applies that promise to every single one Christian. That, that there's not a there's not a thin place you need to spiritually travel to. You don't need to go to some faraway temple or some faraway land or some faraway mountain. But he actually says, he actually promises to every Christian in Hebrews chapter 13, as the Lord our God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That is an amazing promise given to each and every Christian. I love when I, one of the most exciting things I ever, I ever learned when I took Greek. Right? I, I took a couple years of Greek for Bible college and seminary. And one of the most exciting, I don't know, I, I'm not a grammar geek. Some of you guys actually got some linguists here, right? Got some linguists here. 
I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a grammar geek, but not really, but there's one thing I learned in Greek class, and it was this construction, who may, right? And this was the idea of, and in Chinese it works. So if you speak Chinese, in Chinese you have two different ways of saying no, right? Bu and men. Like booyah and mayo, right? Like boo and may. They both mean no. Am I right? All right. Back me up here, homies. <laughs> So Greek, Greek, it's easy for you Chinese people to learn Greek because Greek has two ways of saying no. Instead of boo, it's oo, and instead of may, it's may. Well, it's not instead of, it's the same word. <laughs> so they have boo and may, and they use them in different ways, just like Chinese uses boo and may in different ways. But Greek does something even cooler. Sometimes it slaps the two together. It slaps them together. So you get this word, ume. And when, when ume is slapped together, in Scripture, in the New Testament, it means it will never, ever, 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 ever happen. Never. And generally in the New Testament, it is only used of God's promises to his people. And that's the word construction used twice in that verb. I will, ume, I will never leave you. I will, ume, I will never forsake you, is the promise that God makes. To Christians, that's the promise that God makes. It's not, so I, I, to be honest, if you want to get right down the point, I think Jacob misses the point of this. Jacob wakes up from this dream going, oh my goodness, what an amazing place this is. Jacob needed to understand, no, what an amazing God this is. Like he gets excited about naming the place Bethel, house of God. He needed to be excited about the God who has promised, I will never leave you. So the significance of this place is not the quality of the place itself, but it's that God chose to reveal himself to Jacob there. It, there's one significant thing in this passage, don't, don't, don't miss. Like I got this from a commentary, I didn't make this up, but everything we've seen so far in Jacob's life, what's Jacob's, what was it, what was it, what, why did they call him Jacob? Why the name of Jacob? The heel grabber, right? When he was coming out of the womb, he was clutching on to something. So they're going, wow, that guy really likes to grab onto the heel. We'll call him heel grabber, Jacob. And then all every other story we've seen in his life so far is him grasping to try to get something, to try to take something from his brother, to try to get something or gain something from his father. And his whole life has been one of grabbing, 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 me, me, get this for myself. And suddenly when he's at his lowest point, God's like, you're not going to be able to grab anything. In your sleep, I'm going to reveal myself to you. Right? Like, what can you do in your sleep? You can't do anything in your sleep. God's like, exactly. That's the point, Jacob, at which I'm going to reveal myself to you. Jesus confirms. There's this really cool story. If you got a Bible, go to John 1. There's this really cool story in John chapter 1 where Jesus confirms that this place, this Bethel is not a thin place. Bethel is the place where God chose to reveal himself to Jacob. So in John chapter 1, in John chapter 1, Jesus is beginning to reveal himself 
to the disciples, right? He reveals himself to Peter and to Andrew. And he reveals himself, he, he goes to a guy named Philip and says, come and follow me. And Philip sees Jesus and believes that he is the chosen one, that he's the Messiah. And so he goes and he finds his friend Nathaniel. And he finds his friend Nathaniel. Uh, Philip was Bethesda, the city of Andrew Peter. Philip found Bethesda and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we found the Messiah, the one Moses wrote about. We found him, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Come on, that's not Colorado. Nazareth? That's not where you find God. That's not Bethel. That's not Jerusalem. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you really going to find God in Nazareth? And I, I honestly think that Jesus, uh, that Nathaniel's question sets Jesus off. <laughs> it's just like Jacob waking up and going, I didn't realize God was in this place. Nathaniel, when he goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It kind of sets Jesus off. Maybe Jesus was reading Genesis 28. Because look at what Jesus says to him when he comes. He says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This is a strange way to greet someone. And it's a strange way to greet someone. It's, it's a very strange way to greet someone. This is the only time in the entire, uh, any of the four Gospels, in which a, a Jewish person, a Jewish man, is called an Israelite. Every other time in the Gospels, the more colloquial you know, term is used, Jew. So it would, be, it would be more normal to say, behold, here's a Jewish person. This is the only time. Jesus says, behold, an Israelite. Why is that significant? Israel is the name God later gives Jacob at Bethel. When Jacob returns to Bethel, he changes the name and says, your name shall not be Israel. You're no longer going to be the heel grabber. You're going to be the one who struggles with God. That's Israel. And so we, we get reminded of Jacob, the old Israelite. We get reminded of Jacob again here. In whom there's no deceit. That's a strange greeting. But who do we know as the, the, the deceiver again and again and again? It was this Israel. It was this Jacob. But later he says, you think nothing good can come out of Nazareth? Let me tell you. I tell you the truth, he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He says to Nathaniel, you're going to have a vision that's greater than Jacob. See, Jacob, the deceiver, who was later named Israel, Jacob, the deceiver, he went out to the wilderness. He had a vision where he saw the angels ascending and descending on this ladder. He saw God enthroned above him, I said. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You've got a greater vision of God right here in front of you. Jacob had a dream of God's salvation. God's salvation is present immediately right in front of you, Nathaniel. Jesus is, there's no thinner place than Jesus. Jesus is not only the place where heaven and earth connect, 
Jesus is fully divine. God incarnate. God himself. God Emmanuel with us. And so you want to go and find a place where you can connect to God? You want to go and find a place where you can have this experience of God? Jesus is saying, look, I am truly Bethel. I am truly the house of God. I am truly Savior. And so the truth in place, listen, the truth in place is anywhere you go, and see Jesus. You, you don't need to go out to. I mean, we got a guy in our congregation. You guys know. Um, you guys know Aaron. You guys know Aaron. Aaron. Aaron, man, that guy. If you don't know Aaron, he's one of the university students. He graduated what last year. This guy, man. This winter, he went on what a forty-day in the middle of the wilderness. I don't even know what to call what he did. He went out with a tent and coal. That's what he brought with him. He brought the coal with him. And, uh, uh, man. And, and he did, uh, he will say, he had an experience of God out there. But I would claim his experience of God out there is probably birthed more out of his desperation <laughs> than out of any sort of destination. Your thin place is where you meet Jesus. Like, it could be, for some of you, it could be literally right here this morning. Right here this morning you come, and you're realizing, I have ran away from my family, I have ran away from my problems, I have tried to run away from my sin, and right now I'm broken before the Lord, and I see I need a Savior. It can be, for me, my fifth place was in the driveway of my friend's house when I was 16 years old. When he asked him the car radio and the song came on, Jesus and Mama always loved you. And he said, what do you think about this song? What do you think about Jesus? And I've been running away from Jesus for years, and that was where God revealed himself to me. He was where he opened up my heart to receive his salvation in Jesus Christ. Your thin place could be wherever. And that's the thing. I, I think when we, when we start asking, why Bethel? Why did God meet him there? Was, I don't think it's there anything special about that place. And it's something I just said. A thin place is not a destination, but it is a point of desperation. Is that Jacob and you, it's not that Bethel's a significant point on a map. It's that it was a significant moment in Jacob's life where he finally came to the point where he's able to see now the consequences of his sin. Or for maybe for the first time in his life, he's dealt with the consequences of his sin. He, he, Jacob didn't set out, Jacob didn't go get his passport and his yoga mat and start going out, where in the world can I go and meet with God? Jacob was running for his life. And as he's running for his life, as he has cut ties with his dad, as he has, you know, had to flee from his mother who loved him, as he, as his brother was looking at murdering him, Jacob finds a spot, and there's a small detail in the text, right? This, this stone is important, because the stone is important. You know why the stone is important? Because the ancient near, near Middle East was this place of, like, radical hospitality. And, and what, 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 what seems to be indicated here is that Jacob, for some reason, was so marked, or, or something... He could not even find a place of welcome anywhere. 
So he's actually got to go sleep in the wilderness with a stone under his head. He is in a desperate place. And that's where his deceit had led him, to that point of desperation. And, and, I, don't, and I don't know, I would just suggest that maybe it's God meets Jacob at Bethel because for the first time in his life, Jacob is desperate enough to meet him. Maybe for the first time in his life, Jacob is desperate enough to see him, to know him. And that's where I, I said that to the kids, right? God, God reveals himself to him and he says, Behold, the Lord stood above the ladder and said to him, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, but he does not say, I am your God. It's only later in the text, after Jacob sees this vision, after he, he after he's received these promises of the Lord that I will never leave you, never forsake you, it's only then that Jacob says, God, if this is really true, if you in fact are doing all of this for me, then in fact you will be my God. And after this moment in Scripture, Jake, uh, whenever God, uh, Yahweh is referred to, he's often referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like this is a this is a momentous turning point in in Jacob's life. It doesn't it doesn't solve all his problems. He's he's still on the run from Esau, right? He's he, he in fact he's still he, he's going to meet this guy named Laban, and and Laban's going to be just as deceitful to him as Jacob's been to everybody else. So, so Jacob's life doesn't turn out rosy after this, but this is where he meets God. It's his lowest moment, and it's also the place in which Jacob meets him. And so that was the message I gave to the children. you got to meet God for yourself. And I know this is hard, but sometimes God's going to lead you to a place, not where you got your yoga mat in this cool temple, Sometimes God will lead you to a place of desperation before you're ready to see Him. I pray that doesn't happen to you. Like I honestly pray, and I would pray for each of these children, and I pray for each of these teenagers, and I pray for each of us. Don't. I, my prayer is that you don't need to be taken to a point of desperation before you see God. If you grew up in a Christian family, I hope if you grew up in a Christian family. I hope and I pray that you saw parents who loved each They probably got in each other's nerves. But I hope you saw parents who loved each other. I hope you saw parents who worked hard to provide a good life for you. I hope you, you saw parents who didn't abuse alcohol or drugs. I hope you I hope you grew up in a house where divorce was never an issue. I hope you grew up in a house where they were teaching you the scriptures from a young age. I hope you grew up in a house where the consequences of sin were minimized because of obedience to Christ. And if that's the case, you probably didn't have that hard of a life. And so if that's the case, you might not see what relevance Christ is to your life. Because you're like, I never had to call on him. I never had to cry out to him. I have never had to need him. Look, you're in just as much in need of a savior, you child who grew up in a loving, secure family. You are just as much in need of a savior as Jacob who grew up in this dysfunction. As Jacob who grew up in this deceit. And be th- if your life has not been hard, be thankful to God. Be thankful for Jesus. Like, but I know, because I just know how God works, some of you might have to be taken to that place of desperation. I, I mean, that was, that was, 
that was this last trip to Colorado. That was that my, my only my only hope going out there was that my brother was in that place. Not because Colorado is a thin place where heaven and earth are three feet apart, but because he was in a place of desperation. So we, we went out there and had one goal. And one goal was to worship God with him. And one goal was to sit with him every day for about an hour, hour and a half. We would sit, we would just sing worship songs. We'd sing songs like that song we sang at our retreat yesterday. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. Oh, how I need you, Lord. You are my only hope. You are my only prayer. And we would just sing. Because that, 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 that place, this, the, the, the reality is, it doesn't matter where we are. God says he's, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. The thin place is the place where God reveals himself to you. Lord, I, I pray, um, I thank you so much, God, that we don't have to go hunting to try to find places on this earth where you could be reached. There, there, there's no mountain we could ascend to bring us closer to God. There, there's no temple we could make that would try to entreat you to come and dwell near. But God, we're so thankful that Jesus has come near that Jesus left his home in heaven and he sought a people to save. That he walked our streets. That he got the dust on his feet. That he drew near and he said, here I am. You will see the angels ascending and descending on me. That if, that if we're looking for a vision of God, we see it in him. And Lord, I pray for each one of us, I pray for my brother, I pray for each one in this room, God, that we would come to the place, not a location, but that we'd come to a place where we're humbled before you, and that you would reveal to us and we would see our need for a Savior. God, I pray that you'd meet us in our places of desperation. Lord, I pray you'd meet us in our places of isolation. I pray, Lord, you'd, you'd meet us uh, to those places where we have where we have uh, created calamity for ourselves through our sinful actions. I pray you'd meet us in all of those places, Lord, where we have nothing to bring to you. Because, God, you've revealed in your scripture you are a forgiving God, you are a loving God, that you have made every provision necessary for us to return, to be redeemed, to be brought into your family, to be forgiven. Lord, I pray for each one of us. You meet us where we're at today. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to um, go into a time of response. This might be a quiet time for you. This might be a time for you right now where you say, God, I, I bring to you nothing but my sin and my desperation. Help me, heal me, forgive me. He has promised that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's promised that forgiveness of sins is available to everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. And so just right now as we're singing, maybe this is a time where you meet with God, where that, that veil between heaven and earth is opened up, and you meet Jesus.
And you return to Jesus. And you cry out to Jesus. And so sing along with us. If you, you may not be able to sing, just sit and pray where you're at. And uh, what we're going to be doing uh, through this time also, through the second song, I'll be passing out the elements for the Lord's Supper. If you're here and if you know Jesus, if you profess Him publicly through your baptism, just receive once again the promises of God. We're going to take the cracker, then take the cup. We're going to celebrate together after the music is finished. And if you're here today, you're not yet, you don't yet know Jesus. I have to implore you and plead with you today to oh, come before God and cry out to Him. But just help us then by passing. Uh, the, the elements around. If you haven't yet been baptized, just help us by passing the elements around. Come and see me after the service. We'd love to walk and prepare you for that as well. So I'll pass the time over to our worship team.